You never know when a financial emergency might happen. Perhaps it takes the form of a job loss or maybe unplanned medical expenses. This is why financial managers urge people to set up a rainy day fund to make dealing with those events less stressful. But a recent report shows Indiana parents set aside on average one-third of the amount of money as the rest of the nation. And the rate of saving among the general population is also well below what financial consultants recommend. I'm WFIU Sarah Whitmire, and today on Noon Edition, we'll talk with two experts about the importance of rainy day accounts and ask questions about how much you should be saving and when you should start. We'll talk about the impact of the Great Recession on people's spending habits, and we'll take your questions and comments after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief at WFIU and WTIU, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm sitting in today for Bob Salzberg. A recent report by BMO Harris Bank shows Indiana residents are less prepared than the rest of the country when it comes to putting aside money into rainy day accounts. Today on Noon Edition, we have two financial experts in the studio who are going to talk about the importance of rainy day accounts and answer questions about how much you should be saving, when you should start. Of course, we invite you to join the conversation as well. We'll introduce our guest. We have Timothy Bowman. He is the director of the Ron Blue Institute for Financial Planning at Indiana Wesleyan University. And and Susan Elser, and she is the president of Elser Financial Planning in Indianapolis. Thank you both for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Great and then to be here. the numbers for you to call and join the conversation are 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-WFIU. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash noon edition. And while you're online, feel free to follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Whew, now that we got all that out, let's start by just talking about savings in general. This report that came out from BMO Harris is showing that Indiana parents in particular are, what is it, a third less likely to, they save a third less than the average person. Any idea why Hoosiers aren't saving as much as their counterparts in other states? I'll throw that out to both of you. Well, I was just, um, I just, I think it's concerning uh, the report. Uh, a part of it might simply be the fact that the cost of living is a little bit lower in Indiana. Uh, that would be a small part of it, um, but certainly it's a it's a concern and and shows a need. Um, particularly one of the reasons we started uh, the Ron Blue Institute for Financial Planning at Indiana Wesleyan was a concern about financial literacy. So I think it expresses a need for financial literacy at a number of levels in Indiana. Did you have anything to add? Okay. I, I'm wondering about just the Great Recession in general and what lessons we, we truly learned from that if we still see saving at such such a low rate. 
Sarah, I think one observation of the people learned from the Great Recession was not to get into buying a home until they had savings, that unexpected things happen. And um, if you lose a job, if you have a major repair expense, and you don't have that emergency money set aside, a lot of people lost their homes in that situation. What other sort of things have, have people done differently? I mean, it, it maybe saving saving more money before buying a home, but are they really putting away money, say, for if there's a medical emergency or they need a new roof, things like that? Well, one of the concerns uh, when I teach students, we talk a little bit historically about the savings rate in America. And in the 70s, it was around 8% that Americans saved of their income. In the, in the 80s, it dropped to 6%. In the 90s, it dropped to around 5%. And then actually in the year 2005, right before the Great Recession, it actually was negative. So the last time we saw a negative savings rate was actually around the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can see why we had the Great Recession, because you're kind of moving at some point. If you're spending more than you're earning, you know, when's the shoe going to drop? So the savings rate has actually bounced back up. You know, I think it's around 4% right now nationally. But it's not where it should be in order for people to be able to, you know, sustain those those emergencies. So they're saving four percent of their earnings, on average. On average. Yeah, that's kind of that's total savings. You know, retirement, emergency, and and that type of thing. So that it doesn't cut it. It's a lot better than negative half a percent. So you know, we're kind of mm-hmm. moving there, but. There's a lot of work to be done. Do you think low interest rates are kind of tamping down people's enthusiasm for saving? I mean, when interest rates were higher, you'd get your statement every month and you go, woohoo, I made this much money with just, you know, putting it away. That was great. But now it's just like, oh, really? That's it? Do you think that has anything to do with it? Is that in people's minds? I think that's possible. I think the um, growing acceptance of credit cards, which our grandparents never would have used, mm-hmm. um, I think getting into homes with very little equity and not having any flexibility to get out should something go wrong um, all play a part. I do think that the growth of high deductible health insurance is raising awareness of how people really need to have that emergency savings on hand. Um, our son was in a bicycle accident a couple years ago, and we wrote a check for $5,000, which was our out-of-pocket, mm-hmm. quicker than you could imagine, mm-hmm. um, because health expenses really mount quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's a trend also is higher deductibles. Mm-hmm. Um, all of your insurance, if you think about it, you know, you get such a break in your monthly uh, charge on that if you will accept a higher deductible. So I think... You know, that does, of course, put the onus on us then as individuals to, as you say, have that higher deductible in pocket and ready to spend. But obviously, uh, A doesn't necessarily yeah. or B doesn't necessarily follow A. I, I would add, I do think it, it's having a big impact because when you're earning like a quarter of a percent on your savings, it's kind of depressing and you're thinking, <laughs> what can I do with that money? And particularly when you're in a market right now to where I think the return of the market the past 30 years since it's had this huge run-up is over 11% on average for the past 30 years. So people are, are seeing the market go up. Now, they're concerned because they've seen it get cut almost in half, you know, in the course of a couple of months. But then they're also seeing savings rates at, at a quarter percent, even though it's it's critical to have an emergency fund. So I think psychologically, yeah, those low rates have had an impact. Are they putting their money in other places then if they're not putting them in these savings accounts that 
have these really low rates? Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, I think that the way that most people invest is through their re- company retirement plan. So that's your 401k if you work for a corporation, a 403b if you work for a nonprofit. And while that's wonderful and that's necessary, it's not immediately accessible. If you're under 59 and a half, you're going to pay a 10% penalty. Even if you're over 59 and a half, you're going to pay income taxes. If you borrow against that money, take a loan against your 401k and then lose your job, that's immediately repayable or subject mm-hmm. to income tax and penalty. So, Which is no joke, the income tax and penalty. I mean, that ends up taking a substantial bite. That can't be underestimated. And at the worst possible time if you lost your job. So you're looking at losing income at the same time having to repay this significant Mm -hmm. amount. I really wish they would do away with the availability of that. I don't Mm -hmm. think so many people go into those loans Mm -hmm. realizing the risks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, So what do you tell people in terms of how they should diversify their savings? Then it sounds like you're saying don't put it all in a retirement account, but what should they do? My recommendation is to have your um, liquid emergency reserves in a separate account from your checking account. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this famous study of watching kids try to avoid eating a marshmallow in exchange for getting a second marshmallow, and those that were successful at it didn't look at the marshmallow. I mean, (laughs) you, you put it away, you do not look at that in your checking account every month, and it's the only way to make sure that when a real emergency happens, you've got it there. And then you set up an automatic savings plan where a little bit of money goes back into that account to replenish it as you have to pay for the transmission or the roof or the health care bill. I've heard several financial advisors um, talk about the the theory of pay yourself first. Right. So, yeah, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Well, it's so true. You think of your priorities every month, and it it really shows that, you know, your values follow your money. Um, who do you pay every month first? First, you've got to take care of yourself. So you put a little bit of money in the 401k, you put a little bit of money in the savings account, and then you say, now what can I afford to spend on everything else? Build your budget from that first. Mm -hmm. So even if you, and it seems a little counterintuitive at first, I think, when you start thinking about it, it's like, well, but I have an interest that I'm paying on this credit card bill, so I really better get that paid off. But you say, no, not necessarily. Well, that's a tricky situation if you're already into credit card debt. Then I've got to look at what your interest rate is, um, what your other resources are, and obviously paying off credit card debt, I would put before about anything else. Um, But staying out of credit card debt is the reason we encourage people to have savings to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you don't use that, that high-interest credit card, which all of the rates, it seems, across the board on those have gone up kind of remarkably in the last several years. So people have been using those as their emergency fund, their rainy day fund, and then paying that back at an increasingly onerous interest rate. You're right. But are we seeing fewer people relying on credit cards since the recession? Certainly, I think the um, the awareness of the issues with credit card debt and, and you know having too large of a, a home loan has the awareness has increased in the country. I and mean, that's why you're seeing huge amounts of the amount of particularly millennials that are renting compared mm-hmm. to owning. And uh, even older folks are, are certainly, you know, in retirement are deciding, you know what, I think I might want to rent. Uh, it's just the numbers have, have increased. So the awareness is out there. Um, it's one of those things that it seems like the farther away we get from the recession, 
people began to forget a little bit more um, over time. But certainly, I think when you've got an emergency fund and retirement, those are two completely different goals. So you almost have to mm-hmm. separate them in your savings because the purpose of an emergency fund is for unexpected short-term needs. And the purpose for your 403B or 401K or IRA, those are for retirement needs. So not only do you kind of in your mind want to have them in separate compartments, <coughs> but where you put those funds are going to be completely different as mm-hmm. well. One by design is not liquid, and the other by design is very liquid. Correct. I mean, the emergency fund, you want to have access to your emergency fund, but not very easily. You know, I... Um, Everything's online. Everybody yeah, banks online. You can yeah. get to anything, any moment. I, uh, I've i got three little girls, and this past week we're at the 4-H fair um, up in Howard County. And... You know, we we had we went out there. We were enjoying all the fun and got to see the animals. And um, you know, I I made the mistake at the end. My girls, you know, we've for three years in a row we've always gotten ice cream. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? We're at the fair. We can get ice cream anywhere. So let's get a let's get a funnel cake. Well, that was a complete failure on my part because. You know, I quickly realized they weren't interested in the funnel cake. I also realized I was full from everything else that I <laughs> ate. So there I was, and we had nothing to drink. And right next to me was a lemonade stand. And if you've ever gone to the fairs, you know, you're hot, you're sticky, you're really thirsty. And I've got this funnel cake, and my mouth is really dry. And I spent $6 on a glass of lemonade. Now, it tasted really good. Um, the reason I'm saying that story is that's a situation uh, that's not an emergency, although it may have felt that way for me. That was just a situation of, of poor planning. And so when you talk about, you know, in, in some ways, if you go to the mall, it's like going to the fair with food. You know, you've got all of these things where you go, it's an emergency. That is a nice pair of shoes or, you know, I want that uh, piece of electronics. And, and, and you've got to be able to determine um, and, and identify what a need is uh, different from, from a want. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of be your own parent and say, now, now. Yeah, and that way, if you have it in a separate account and it's out of sight, not of mind, and you, it's a couple extra steps, you know, mm-hmm. to get there, you know, you hide the checking account uh, or, the, or you hide the checkbook, you know, you don't carry it with you, you do not have your emergency fund tied to a debit card. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that way you've got to make a couple steps because if I had that with me and I'm really thirsty, I'll probably access it. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. I think about it and I can't access it, access it right then, I'll make a better decision. So what about online banking, blessing or curse? I think it's a wonderful way, um, especially if you're willing to forego the local branch and use a First Internet Bank, a GE Capital Bank, you can get 0.8, which is not a lot, I realize, but it's it's a lot more interest rate than you might be able to get on that emergency cash savings elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? What do you think? No, I, I think they're great. I think it gives consumers uh, more options and choices. And I think what Susan said, the interest rate is typically higher for some online banks than it is at your typical mega uh, bank than what you would have. So sometimes the online banks are one of the best places to have your emergency fund. So and why you, is that? Because the interest rate is higher. Mm-hmm. So you might decide to, you know, Ally Bank is a bank that a lot of different financial experts talk about. 
um, that is completely online. They have no physical presence, and their interest rates are typically significantly higher than what you would get from a large uh, mega bank. And so, you know, you might use that large bank for your normal everyday expenses and your checking account and that type of thing. But maybe you, maybe that's that extra step. It's a way. It's not something you see normally, and, and you put your emergency fund in, in something that's online. See, that gives me a huge pecker factor. The thought of seriously though, if let's say the grid goes down, that money is in my mind, much less eventually accessible sure. than you know anything local. Well, the thing is, though, even the big banks are moving to a lot of online banking options. Right. And so um, for for someone in your situation, the next best, best option a lot of times is a local credit union. Mm-hmm. You know, credit unions a lot of times offer a really good interest rate, mm-hmm. and you have people that you know, and you have a comfort level with them. So that's something that I would encourage to, to utilize, too. I want to remind our listeners how they can join the conversation. It's 812-855-0811, toll free at 1-877-285-WFIU, or you can join our live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and put your questions in there for our financial experts. So the one recent study that just came out said fewer than half of all Americans have six months set aside in a rainy day fund. So I'm wondering about this sort of six-month threshold, where that came from, and if that still holds true that six months is really this this sort of magic number that we need to achieve. Well, Sarah, what I would look at is how many wage earners do you have in the household? So if I have two incomes coming in and can manage down my expenses, I can quit traveling, I won't buy clothes, if something were to happen to one of our incomes, then maybe I'm comfortable with a three to four month reserve. But if I only have one wage earner, a sole breadwinner, and we have fairly significant fixed expenses without a lot of flexibility, we've got a big mortgage, maybe we've got a car payment, then that six months becomes far more critical. And I read some analysts are even saying post-recession, maybe we need more than that. I mean, do you advise folks of that? Well, what we saw in the past recession was it took a lot of people a lot longer than three or six months to regain their position, especially if you were in certain industries, financial, et cetera. So in that case, you just need to maybe have a year or I mean, I guess, how do you tell people that? And then also, I guess the second part of it is for people who have nothing set aside now, which is, I think, what, more than a quarter of folks, how do they even start when you see this big daunting figure that you really, that you really should have? I think you really have to decide what's important to you. And anyone who witnessed the past recession we came through and saw families lose their homes, people losing their jobs. Um, It's not a pretty situation, and you've just got to decide. Um, Dave Ramsey has financial peace classes offered at different churches, and one of the things he likes to say is, until I pay off all my credit card debt, until I have a couple thousand dollars in the bank, I'm not going to see the inside of a restaurant. I'm going to eat beans and rice. I mean, you, you make your choices. Do I need the cable bill? and work backwards from what is it that's important to me, and I'm going to set my priorities in that way. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with Susan. And I think that you know, if, you have, if you don't have an emergency fund, and let's say you've paid off your credit card debt, you just want to get in the habit. So you first, you've got to start a goal. And that goal may be $500. It could be $1,000. And you just start working towards that goal. And so you, know, you may say, you know what, um, every time I have a $5 bill, I'm going to throw that into my online or maybe my credit union 
savings account, or you may decide to put 5% of everything that you make into an emergency fund until you build up you know, that $500 or $1,000. And then once you hit that goal, you reevaluate and you start looking at, okay, what, what's my next goal? You know, it's kind of like if you've got a goal to lose weight, you know, and I've gained weight from time to time, you know, if I've got 20 pounds to lose and I think about trying to lose all of that, you know, in one week, um, I get pretty depressed by the end of the week. So um, usually it's, uh, you know, I probably got to lose about two pounds and I should probably do that over the course of the next couple of days. So you just take it one bite at a time. The one thing we heard from a couple people this week as we were gearing up for the show is I don't have a savings account. And if I do start small, if I just put in $5 a week out of my paycheck, then I'm going to have to pay a penalty because I won't have the minimum balance for a savings account. I would look online for a better option mm -hmm. because I think if you go to um, bankrate.com, look at the internet banks, especially where you're not paying for the brick and mortar, that that's a, you're going to find a place without a low minimum. A minimum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of options out there that they won't penalize you, but typically it's either the online or a smaller credit union. Uh, the larger the bank, typically the more likely you're going to have some fees involved. If you go below that minimum right. balance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, do you feel that it's... Um, We've lost, I mean, I grew up with a piggy bank. Most of us uh -huh. did, you know, and that was part of the deal. You know, you'd put part of your allowance away or there was an expectation that when you got that $5 bill from grandma in your birthday card that that went in either your piggy bank or, as, you know, if, you, if your parents set one up for you, an actual savings account. Do you think that that tradition has kind of fallen away from the American way of life? Mary Catherine, you bring a great up. Point. And there's a great saying that says, don't worry that your children aren't listening to what you do because they're watching everything um, that you do. And, and if you demonstrate every single day to your children that we don't buy impulsive things, that we make our decisions based on what our budget is. Um, I had a client tell me one time that was having a difficult time in their business. And they said that their five-year-old's birthday party was coming up and they wanted it to be a big to-do. And so they felt like they had to spend all this money on a five-year-old birthday party. And what a great lesson that might have been mm -hmm. to say, things have changed. We had other expenses, uh, business is going slow, so let's find a way to make fun at the party for this new budget. And we're not gonna be able to do this, but let's think positively. What matters more to us is that we live within our means, mm -hmm. that we have financial security, and if your kids see this and hear it over and over and over again, they're going to live it. And there's a lesson of resiliency in that story, too, there I is. think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's important, too. That what we buy is not what makes us happy. Yeah. I want to talk more about this education part of it. And, Timothy, maybe you can, you can address this. Because one of the things that, that I've heard is, obviously, yes, your parents are your best teachers. And especially in a case like this, we've heard schools aren't doing anything. And maybe some of the burden should fall to them. So I'm wondering what you, th I mean, do schools have a responsibility in this to be teaching kids to put away some money and learn how to save before you ever even get that first paycheck? I think we all have a responsibility, and I think schools play a part, parents play a part, um, the federal government plays a part. Um, I think you, grandparents pay, play a part. Ab absolutely. You know, when we were talking about intergenerations, you know, part of the reason our grandparents were so good at saving is they remember the Great Recession. I mean, the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. You know, they remember having nothing. You know, I, 
I remember my grandma talking about uh, her uh, her dad worked at a, a cereal maker, and that's pretty much all she ate. So she would never eat that cereal again. You know, once once uh, that was over. But um, you know, so I think that uh, one of the positives about the Great Recession is that the younger generation, um, particularly, I've been teaching for about five years, and the first year that I taught, I would ask students, I'd just say, how many of you guys have, you know, credit cards? And typically about half of them would raise their hand. When I asked now, this past year, out of about 30 students, I had three who raised their hands that they have credit cards. Um, and, and there's a positive and negative to that, and you could get into, you know, your credit score and all those, those different things, but there's an awareness now of... Um, the challenges of getting overextended with your debt. But I would say I think parents have a responsibility. I think um, it, it would be great to get more financial. Part of the reason at Indiana Wesleyan we created the Ron Blue Institute for Financial Planning is we're concerned about the amount of debt the college students are graduating with. Mm-hmm. And our president, Dr. Wright, he partnered with Ron Blue, who's actually he's an IU Kelly School of Business grad and um, actually started one of the what today is one of the four largest financial planning firms, Ronald Blue and Company. Um, you know, they met and they said, "Hey, this is this is a problem, and we want to work on a solution. So we want to increase financial literacy for not only our students at Indiana Wesleyan, but but help others. So we're we're teaching classes and we're working on curriculum. Certainly, um, I know the president's working hard on the cost of college because that's one aspect of it. We've got. Um, something we're working on called the Hoosier 10K plan to try to. Uh, right now, the average debt I think is between 26 to 28,000 that an average senior graduates with, um, and he's working on a plan that it's no more than 10,000 um, for for Indiana students. So, um, you know, you've got that side. Okay, let's lower the amount of debt students are graduating with, but then also let's equip them to make wise financial decisions. Mm-hmm. When my wife and I graduated from college, we had over $40,000 of debt between the two of us. If you add that with inflation, it would be close to we would be graduating with about seventy thousand today wow. between yeah. the two of us. And I'm sure it's a lot more for a lot of kids now. Sure. When especially out of state students, we should probably take a break really quick here. Um, reminder: You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and today we're talking about savings accounts, rainy day funds. You can join the conversation at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five. WFIU. We'll be right back. Serving Southern Indiana with five. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Communications. More information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
And we're back. Thank you for listening to Noon Edition on WFIU as we continue our conversation about financial literacy. 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-WFIU. We're joined in the studio today by Timothy Bauman. He's the director of the Ron Blue Institute for Financial Planning at Indiana Wesleyan University. And Susan Elser, she's the president of Elser Financial Planning in Indianapolis. They can take your questions today about, I think, just about anything to do with your finances. Thanks, Sarah. You know, um, we were talking at, right before we went on break, kind of starting to talk about college students and debt and, and uh, you know, the amount of debt that college students are um, leaving school with. And Susan, you let us know at break about a, a new initiative at, uh, that started here at Indiana University. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Well, my understanding is they raised awareness among the students of how they could track their student loan debt and um, really tried to encourage students to think hard about taking on additional debt. And they were able to see a significant reduction. Sarah, 13 million is coming to mind. Something like that. I know it it was, golly, it was at least 5 or 8% more than the national average. So they were really able to reduce the student loan debt by raising awareness, getting students to think hard about taking out that additional amount, which I think is marvelous. Right, because you can take uh, up to a certain amount, but you don't have to take the max. But I think as a matter of course, um, I've talked to enough college students to know that, you know, they would just take the max because, woohoo, you know, that's extra pizza or whatever, and not really think about the long-term consequences of that but because they could actually go online and see, okay, you know, if I take the maximum, here's what my eventual, here's what that money's going to actually cost me personally in the long run, they were able to make better decisions. Is that, do I have the gist of the, the program I right? Think, I think so. It's been interesting just students I've talked to where they may even be on full scholarship, but they would take out those loans in order to have money to live on, mm-hmm. money to have fun. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it seems like this financial calculator, and they're doing some financial literacy programs too help make students more aware. So information is power, certainly, for for everybody. Um, are there ways that people who aren't in college can maybe track their, uh, I, I guess both their, you know, most people's income tends to be pretty steady, but um, maybe the cost of our money. I've noticed on um, some credit card uh, statements when we get them, it says, you know, if you pay this in one month, this will cost you this much. If you pay it in six months, it will cost you this much. If you, if you take, I don't, it even goes up to like two years. It, this is what this will actually cost you. And wow, very sobering. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's good information. Is, do you think that's a, a trend for, you know, getting people to pay more attention to what that? sale item might actually end up costing them over six months or a year if it takes them that long to pay it off? That's a long-winded question. Sorry, Gabe. Well, uh, my answer would be absolutely. And I'm pretty sure there are a ton of different apps for that. And and one of the companies in particular that has made a lot of headway is a company called Mint.com. I believe it was actually bought by Intuit a few years ago, but it's actually completely free. And it tracks... It can if Now... Mary Catherine, you may not like the fact that a lot of the, they're tracking everything online. 
and they track what you... know, you... I'm not that much of a geezer. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm okay. I do online banking. I'm just that cool. Oh, you do? But okay. Yes, I do. Very good. I do. But I, I like to diversify. Anyway, go on, they, go on. They track... Um, you can connect your credit cards. You can connect your savings accounts um, at your local credit union, at, your, at a larger bank, uh, at an online bank. They track the student debt that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you can type in, you know, if you own a car, what the value of it is, and basically automatically so you get like an instant, an instant value. It, it'll something? tell you how much you own, how much you owe, and what your net worth is. Um, they'll actually let you know about, hey, you know what, you are really overspending. Um, you know, in the fast food area. And, you know, maybe for college students, they'll say, hey, you spent $250 on pizza this month, you know, or, or something. My wife and I actually, it was interesting, we were, we were looking at it, and uh, we realized a couple months ago we had um, a, a number of different people come over to our house, and we looked at it, and we saw that we had gone to Myers 14 times in one month. <laughs> wow. And I said, honey, I said, I, and I'm I'm to blame for a lot of this. I said, uh, we got to sit down and, and plan out what we. So we're at least going, you know, maybe more like once a week or or something like that. So there's a lot of neat tools that are out there. Mint is not the only one, um, but absolutely. And particularly, I mean, like, like I said, the students that I'm. Um, that I teach, I mean, they know more about this than I mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of neat options out And that there. sounds like something that would be attractive to younger people and and be kind of a companion piece to parental training and then have that uh, kind of very tangible reality check for them of, hey, just like you said, uh, are you aware of the fact that you've spent $150 on food in the last sure. two weeks? Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's great. I, okay, I got it. I, I will ask a geezery question though, since you kind of put that on me. What about actual cash on hand? I mean, hard currency in your home or in a coffee can buried in the backyard? No, but <laughs> but really, in in case of you know who knows what, should you have X amount of cash on hand? And if so, how much? To me, you do have certain risks. I understand that there is that fear among some people that the the electrical system of the ATMs will go down, but you are also balancing it against your home being robbed of the cash, you're losing the cash. So um, impulse buys, I think, clearly are related to cash um, on hand. I know my kids have both said if, you know, if there's cash in their billfold, they're more likely to spend it than if mm-hmm. they know it's in the bank. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would weigh those pros and cons. I personally ever hardly have any cash on me. What do you think? You know, I, I would say, I mean, I like, I don't know if I should say this on the radio, but, you know, I like to have, you know, maybe between, you know, somewhere around 50 Dollars or something in cash because you never know. Sometimes you may need a little bit. Fifty of whole cash. dollars. Fifty whole dollars. Yeah. Really, you're really going out there on a limb, aren't you? That that is all you need really today. I mean, it's really rare that you have to pay cash for something, except for maybe at the fair and you're buying funnel cake. But um, <laughs> well, you wouldn't have gotten it's that the lemonade. lemonade that really kills <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, that's that's yeah. true. Um, but you know, I actually um, you really don't need very much because there's we're moving more and more to kind of an electronic system when it comes to buying and. Um, and so, you know, credit cards and or debit cards, you know, you can utilize them. You know, one of the interesting things, my first job out of college, I was a retirement uh, planning consultant, and uh, we had an individual come into our office, and they had $40,000 in a freezer bag, and it had come from their grandmother's freezer. Mm-hmm. 
And that 40000 had been sitting there for over 30 years. Literally cold, hard cash. Cold, hard cash. Making no interest. Making no interest. Think of interest. how much money that money could have made. Did you do the calculation just to rub it in? I mean, I couldn't have well, stopped myself. Well, we didn't do it for them um, <laughs> since they were a potential new client and deposited <laughs> it with us. didn't want to make them feel sad. <laughs> but I've used that story over and over and over again uh, with students because literally that 40000 could have been, you know, it could have been 300000 Mm-hmm. Over that 30 mm-hmm. years, if it oh, had yes. been invested and, and diversified, and you're not talking about going crazy in the amount of... Um, 40 uh, years is a long time. It is. It is a very long time. And so, but that is, um, that's kind of a holdover from the Great Depression. That's a holdover when there was a run on the banks. And the neat thing is that the federal government, um, you know, they created FDIC insurance. So you're insured up to $250,000 um, uh, for your account. So... Um, I think that's still, that's something that's coming from grandparents that, you know, when they saw that their parents had money in a bank and it, it, and it evaporated, they want to have some cold, hard cash. Mm-hmm. On hand. Yeah. Okay. Is it one of Dave Ramsey's plans? I'm trying to remember where it's, you know, when you get paid at the beginning of the month, mm-hmm. you do set aside cash in envelopes. This is my grocery money for the month. This is my... And I, I do know people who've had a lot of success for that with that because, in their situations at least, it, having that debit card mm-hmm. was kind of mm-hmm. like free money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think you make a really good point. And if, if budgeting through the envelope system is your method, I think that makes a lot of sense. But that's, that's still a tracking mechanism. In other words, if I've got an envelope of $200 for eating out money, then I know where that $200 went if I keep it in a separate envelope and budget. Whereas if I am not using a budgeting system and I'm just spending cash, keeping cash on me at the end of the month, I don't really know where that money went to. Mm-hmm. So I actually am, am a fan of for people who need that budgeting system. I think that works very well, but I just think that's a better system than simply withdrawing cash and not really finding yourself accountable for it. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you all, we've talked a lot about young people, but how should your saving strategy change as you age you know, from the time you, you get that first job or even your first savings account until you're ready for retirement? What should you do? Well, there's a couple of different questions from an investment allocation perspective. Um, once I have saved up money for a down payment and my emergency savings, then I can think about building a stock portfolio preferably through diversified mutual funds, and allow that money to grow for retirement. And then the closer I get to retirement, the more I start to shift money from growth assets like stocks into steadier assets like bonds, high-quality bonds. I'm wondering how you balance all those priorities, though, when you when you first start, and then how they maybe should shift in terms of this is what I should put in a 401k. This is what I should put away in my save, my rainy day fund, and this is how much I should be saving for my kids' college. How do you how do you make those decisions, and, and how do how do those change? You know, obviously your kid is hopefully going to graduate college at some point, and, and then they'll go to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> you raise a really good question that the, your needs, your financial needs, how much you have in different buckets, changes throughout your life. And when you have a big mortgage and one income because somebody's staying home to raise little kids, you need a bigger emergency safety net. Mm -hmm. Then later on, when you're in your peak earning years, your peak savings years, your children have graduated, and then you can really be shoving money into those retirement accounts, growing money. 
So, so I completely agree with you that sitting down every six months, every year with a financial planner or just a husband and wife saying, what are our needs right now? How should we cover our bases? is very important. So if you are a, a young person trying to raise kids, get them to college, does maybe your retirement account take more of a back seat until after you get your kids through college? Well, the earlier you save, the more compounding effect you have. So it's far more advantageous to save money early on but just realize that the allocation going into buckets is going to be a little bit different. So I don't want to not save for retirement early on. I just want to make sure that I've covered those contingencies when I've got little kids, when I've got one income earner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah looks a little overwhelmed right now. <laughs> As the it parent is, of well, a three-year-old. Yeah, it is overwhelming. <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned college expenses. Indiana has a great plan for saving for college. Okay, let's talk about that just a little bit, if you don't mind explaining that. Sure. The, uh, um, the Indiana 529 plan, um, they actually, uh, I believe it's uh, every dollar you put in up to $5,000, they give you a, a 20% credit. So if you put five grand in, they'll give you $1,000 back. And one of the things I, I say to parents, I say, you know, if you don't have 5000 to put in there, you know, put, put 50 bucks a month in, put $100 a month in, and you'll still get 20% back. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the low interest rates in banks earning, you know, a quarter of a percent. Well, the state of Indiana is saying, hey, if you save for your kid's education, we'll give you an immediate 20% rate of return. It would take 20 years, you know, to get that Mm -hmm. with what the savings Mm -hmm. rates are now. So the 529 plan in Indiana is great, and I would encourage people to – I don't know if it's 529.com or the Indiana Choice Plan. You can get there through Indiana.gov. Yeah, I mean, there are several different ways to get there, but yeah. CollegeChoiceDirect.com gives you the no sales load direct application. And in addition to the wonderful state tax credit that Tim mentioned, it grows tax-free if you Mm -hmm. use the money for higher education. And the owner, you, Sarah, the parent, would retain full control over it. So if your child doesn't go to college, they don't automatically get the money at age 21 or something. Right. You can even save it. Or if, if one child doesn't use all that you've saved, let's say you got one child through school, but you know this is a great deal, so you want to help your grandchildren, you can then direct it toward other children. Uh, so it's nice. You know, and one thing I would like to say, going back to the difference in ages, is that, you know, there's a lot of similarities, though. They're, they're, I mean, the principles are the same, whether you're right out of college or whether you're retired in the fact that, you know, if you want to be successful financially, you always want to spend um, less than what you make. You always want to have uh, an emergency fund, although that may change. You always want to have long-term planning when you think about, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the future. Um, and so certainly there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of things that change depending on the situation that someone has. Um, but there's a lot of the principles are the same regardless of where you're at. This is only minorly off topic, but um, one thing that t- can derail a family's finances faster than anything is a significant long-term disability. So do you recommend a young person like Sarah, let me say more in your 30s. In my 30s. In her 30s. Um, is it worth or a good idea for her to pay for long-term care or long-term disability insurance because it's not inexpensive, even if you're a very young woman like Sarah. Well, you raise a very good point, and I hope WFIU provides Sarah with group disability insurance. 
many employers do, but for all of those people out there working part-time or self-employed, we see that as a big problem, um, where they would have to go out and buy an individually underwritten disability policy that's significantly more expensive than what IU pays for your plan. Um, then what we say to clients is, What's important is that you have a plan should you become disabled. And it may or may not involve buying an individually written um, disability policy, but it says here's what would happen should I become disabled. Is my spouse going to go back to work? Are we going to downsize our home? Are there significant expenses we could cut back on and live with when on income? So while I like everyone having disability insurance, the fact is if you are part-time or self-employed and not making a lot of money, that is a very expensive purchase. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure you think through what your option is going to be. We go down to one car um, and yeah. have a plan. Mm -hmm. you, you're much more likely to become disabled than you are to, to die early. And so a lot of people carry life insurance, but the likelihood of becoming disabled is, is much greater. And, and so it's a longer-term devastation to the family because it's an ongoing absolutely. thing. It's not just one event that's over and then you reshuffle your world and, and go on in, in a different fashion. And I don't know if you were thinking this, but this actually ties into the emergency fund conversation because a lot of times you've got a short-term disability and there's two different kinds of uh, disability policies. You have short-term, you've got long-term. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have an emergency fund of six months, you know, you don't need short-term disability. Mm -hmm. uh, in many cases, you're going to have built up, if you build a three, six, nine, 12-month uh, emergency fund, you're going to be okay. So, you so don't you're have basically self-insured under those circumstances. Correct. You're self-insured. And so you're self-insured under short-term disability. You're self-insured if you've got to fix something on your roof or your car breaks down or, you know, because the unexpected is, is going to happen mm -hmm. at some point. Everybody's had something What if you get a short-term disability by falling through your roof? <laughs> that is a good point. Boom. But the real risk here is the long term. Right. So, you know, if you're the sole provider uh, for your home, you really, mm -hmm. as Susan said, you've got to think through that. You've got to think through the expenses and everything else. But Right. Uh, I mean, I think the medical expenses that are so often associated with any kind of long-term disability are also just potentially crushing for a family. I personally, I have long-term disability through... Um, my employer, but also I have a supplemental policy mm -hmm. just because right now we've got, you know, we've got three girls, five, three, and one, and we've got another baby coming in the fall. And we're blessed that my wife's, you know, she's staying home right now. She actually was a financial aid counselor, by the way, talking about student debt mm -hmm. um, before, but it would be a real challenge for our family <coughs> if I was disabled long term. So for us, it makes a lot of sense to have a long term uh, disability policy. Okay. Uh, this the study that sort of started this conversation. This um, parents in Indiana just not saving as much as their national counterparts. I'm I'm wondering about just as you were talking about your wife actually staying home with your kids. It does seem like it's really difficult for parents to get ahead when you think about the cost of daycare. And at mm -hmm. that age, you know, parents probably do have a mortgage, and I guess mm -hmm. and I the guess, daycare is often more than the mortgage. Yes. <laughs> um, so in those cases, how do, I mean, Susan, I'm wondering what advice you would give these parents in terms of what do you not do or what do you change? And 
because you certainly want to send your kid to a good daycare, but you want to have money for if something happens and they fall off the roof or do something mm-hmm. crazy. Right. <laughs> so so the more you can plan before you get into situations. Um, I know that when we were buying a house, you know, the mortgage company was saying, well, here's how much we'll let you borrow. And thinking in terms of planning for the future, before I buy a house, what am I going to do if we have children? Mm-hmm. And how can we live? How low of a mortgage should we have to be able to live comfortably and have savings and not be strapped? And to think through all those things before we have children, let's think mm-hmm. about this. Um, so ideally, the more you can plan, the more you can teach your children, you know, as they're getting married, as they're forming households, the more you can teach your children about all of these things, the more better position they'll be in. And I would I would say even sooner than that, I see some people with humongous blingy engagement right. rings right. and I know that they you know, they're walking around with twenty five thousand dollars or more on their hand when I know they'd really love to be able to spend that I mean once they have children they wish they could recapture that money because they have a much higher use for it now so it's but we don't think about those things so much when we're young I guess. you know what one of the things that Ron Blue teaches all the time is he says there's no independent financial decision and Susan was right as you as you think you need to kind of think a little bit down the road that's the benefit of having a financial planner particularly mm-hmm. a fee-based financial planner and thinking through what are some of my goals you know do I want to have um, kids? Um, do we both want to work and focus on our on our careers? And as you start um, as you start thinking about that, um, you know, then you realize that you know the house that I buy that impacts what we can do with some of our family things. The car that mm-hmm. we buy that has an impact. So it, you know, there's no independent financial decision. Mm-hmm. Well said. Okay, and we had a uh, question come in on live chat. It says, what about the use of Roth IRA contributions as an emergency fund? They are available without penalty, and the long term is historically better than alternatives. Well, the disadvantage of that is if you have invested your Roth IRA in a diversified portfolio, including stocks, and you have to tap that Roth IRA at a time when the market goes down. So think about how everything goes together. A recession comes along, the stock market goes down, I lose my job, or maybe my hours get cut back, and that's when I'm trying to sell stocks my Roth IRA. So even though you can get back your contributions, it may be invested in a way that may not be ideal. That's why we always want your emergency reserve in liquid, FDIC-insured, something very safe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. No, I would just in, in adding to that, I actually have some of my emergency funds in a Roth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what Susan said, none of that was invested in the market. And this is a little bit more complex of a strategy. And so if you don't have an emergency fund, the focus is just, you know, st- if you don't have zero, start saving 500 to 1,000 in a local savings account. But that's a great question. Um, to ask, and there are some benefits, but like Susan said, you, you don't want to take money that's in the market and use that for an emergency fund. We don't have much time left, but uh, very quickly, what book, each of you, would you recommend for people who are trying to get started, or what source of uh, wisdom would you recommend quickly? Well, being a part of the Ron Blue Institute, I certainly would recommend. Ron's written over 18 different books on money and money management um, from a Christian perspective, and uh, the book that's really the best is Master Your Money. Master that he's written. Okay. It's been a bestseller. All right. I think the Dave Ramsey books, I think the Ron Blue books, I think the Susie Orman books all focus on make sure that how you live reflects your values, that you start by taking care of your financial 
um, security, <laughs> and that you make every decision based on, is this really what my values are? Can, can I just add, particularly for low-income folks, if we, can, if we can address that? Because I know this, this is incredibly daunting mm-hmm. for people. Anything different that they, that they should know in terms of getting started? You know, the principles are the same. Just start with, you know, if you have zero, have a goal of saving $500 in an emergency fund. You know, set aside $5 a week. At the end of the year, you've got 500 bucks, mm-hmm. you know, saved up. So, or $10 uh, a week, and you've got 500 saved up. So, um, you know, again, the principles are the same: spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt, save for the long term, have an emergency fund. You know, it's the same whether somebody's you know over in Africa or they're in Wall Street. The principles work. And if you have a system of saving it first thing every month, getting it out of your checking account automatically. That's the only way Americans save money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's all the time we have. But thank you both for joining us today. I think we all learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners did too. Thank you to Mary Catherine Carmichael for engineer Mike Pascash and producer Lacey Scarmana. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Have a great weekend. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. You can find podcasts of this and other WFIU programs at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.